Uh, well, thanks again for coming. If you uh, popped in after, uh, after our initial greeting, uh, thank you again for being the church and for uh, meeting with us here today. Um, for those who were not here last week, uh, we began just a, kind of a, 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 again, this is this idea of, of looking upwards and lifting our eyes up to expect more from God. And one of the things that um, I in- invited us to do as a, as a church together, as a congregation together, was to think about what are the, the, the things in our lives, the, uh, these, these big mountains, these boulders, these challenges in our lives that are, seem insurmountable. And what if we really took God at his word that he said, if we have mustard seed faith, then you can, uh, by the power of God, faith in God can move mountains. Do we really believe that to be true? Uh, if you weren't here last week, again, I invite you to, to listen to that message because it sets a groundwork for what we're going to do the next couple weeks here. But the passage we looked at was Ephesians chapter 3, and it tells us about the nature of our God. And I hope that this is a God that you believe in, a God who is able to do immeasurably exceedingly abundantly surpassingly more than you could ever ask or imagine right? is that the god that you believe in is that the god that you pray to because this is the god of the bible not one who's just a little bit stronger than us not just one who's a little bit smarter than us who sees a little bit broader time but but god who stands outside of all that and is able to do so much more anything that we could ever bring to him he can say i can do even more than that and so uh, I, I invite you again to do that. If you haven't done so, you still can. Um, I'm expecting big things this month, guys. I'm really expecting as the people of God pray and as we pray. And even I, like I said in my letter, as I was in Jersey, I was remembering these prayer requests and just lifting up these folks. And um, as God answers, I would invite you to, to fill out a praise report and, and to offer a praise to God for what he's doing. And I really believe that he's going to do things in our midst and in our community. And one of the things that I, I, I a common thread as I was reading through these prayer requests, amongst many things, but some of the things that were constantly repeated was people saying, pray for this family member, pray for this friend, this person who's gone wayward and is addicted to certain things, this person who who doesn't know the Lord and I've been calling on the name of the Lord and just asking, wanting the Lord to bring them to faith in Christ. These situations in our lives and and this family member and this friend who this person used to go to church and now he's addicted to self-injury and he can't can't break that and and I'm praying that he would turn back to God. We all have people in our lives, don't we? People who've fallen away from the Lord. People that we look at their lives and we're like, man, they are in such a, a tough place and I want more for them. Or they're in such a hard place compared to where they used to be in their relationship with the Lord. What do you do in situations like that? When you see people like this in your life, what do you, what do, you do? Here's what some, I know some people would, would, would think about where they used to be and then think about where they are now and, and, and just begin to talk about them. They begin to, to look down on them and say, you know what, they're such a hypocrite. They used to be like this and, and now I see what they do and now they're, they're like this. And, and we begin to talk about them and criticize them. Others, uh, others may, may have the opposite opposite stance and say you know what i want to try and help them out i want to try and, and and bring them to a place where they can find help and they can be changed again so that they can come and and worship with us and we can see young and old returning to the lord god what do you do what's your reaction when you see people like this people who've fallen from the lord people who seem to be struggling and failing in their walk with christ what do you do in situations like that i want to show you what jesus did luke chapter 22 uh three verses four verses here very simple but i think very uh, powerful. If we can really get this, man, I think our lives uh, would radically be changed. Uh, second, uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. This is how Jesus dealt with his failing, falling friends. This is God's word. 
Jesus talking to Peter says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me, deny three times that you know me. This is God's word. I think when we look at our friends, many of them like Peter, who made all these great boasts at some point in time, Peter said, I'll never, I'll, I'll die, I'll go to prison with you. Maybe we know people like that, who at one point in time, they made these kinds of claims. They said, Jesus, I will go to the nations for you. Jesus, I will lift my hands and surrender my life. And then we see them crumble, not being the rock that they thought they were, but being the pebble, the stone that shatters, no longer the rock of Gibraltar, but being a little uh, stone scattered on the ground. And we look at people like that, and, and oftentimes we get discouraged, I think. We look at their lives, we wonder, is there hope for them? And if we've been praying for them, a lot of times we lose hope not only in them, but we lose hope in God. I've been praying, God, but where are you? Why aren't you showing up? And I think sometimes we get so fixated on this little picture of their failings that it debilitates us and it keeps us from really receiving the things that God wants for us and for them as well, as well as for the world, as we'll see. But what did Jesus do? I think Jesus focused not on the, this small picture, but he, he, he stepped back so that he could see a bird's eye view of what's going on. And I think if we do this and we can pray well and pray with answers and pray with faith for our friends who, when they uh, are struggling. The first thing that we have to see in this big picture that keeps us praying is that there's a battle that's being waged for human souls. Hey, there's a battle that's being waged. The battle is being fought. And the trophy and the prize is the souls of human beings. uh, Jesus says, the first thing he says in the passage we read is, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. What in the world does that mean? Anyone know what it means to be sifted as wheat? I I just know that we probably think it's a bad thing. But in those days, when when Jesus is talking to Peter, here's a picture that Peter is getting that everyone in those days would get. A farmer would take wheat, okay, and he would put it into a box, right? Put it into this box, and then they would put a mesh top over the box, okay? This mesh was made out of wire that had jagged, sharp edges. And the purpose of those jagged, sharp edges was to separate the good from the bad in the wheat. And so the farmer would take this wheat in a box, he would put this mesh, jagged wire, uh, ed- jagged edged wire over the top of it, and then he would flip it upside down, and then he'd begin to shake it violently. And the purpose was that in this shaking, that the wheat would get rub against these jagged, sharp edges. And as the farmer shakes it and sifts it, the more violently he shakes it, the good stuff, the wheat, would be separated from the bad stuff. And what Jesus is saying here is that Satan is sifting you, Peter, because he wants to separate you from your faith. Because he doesn't think that you can survive the sifting because he thinks that your faith is going to fall through to the ground and be proven as worthless. It's not just Peter. This is every child of God. This is what Satan wants to do in our lives. He shakes us and he shakes us and he shakes us so that his aim is that our faith would be separated from who we are so that we could say, you know what? I don't I don't hold on to my faith anymore. These trials, this sifting, this testing is so hard that I don't want, he, he wants to break our friendship with Jesus. That's what his desire is. You know anyone who's going through a sifting these days? 
that just through the circumstance of life or through their own struggles, their own trials, Satan is shaking and shift, sifting them through a sifter, through a sieve, so that their faith is separated from the rest of who they are. The purpose, the aim of our enemy. Jesus says this in John chapter 10, verse 10. And why does he do all these things? Because his purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And understanding the way the enemy works helps us to be able to rise up and fight. You see, anytime you see whatever it is, passion being stolen from you or joy being stolen from a person, from a child of God, anytime you see the blessing of God in the aftermath of a retreat or a blessing time being stolen from somebody, it's a pretty clear sign that the enemy is at work. Anytime you see somebody t- uh, trying to kill themselves or try to kill other people or trying to destroy their lives by, by drugs, by uh, sensuality, trying to destroy families or destroy marriages or destroy relationships, destroy friendships, destroy our faith, then it's a pretty good sign that it's not just a natural phenomenon going on here. You can't just look at them and say, you know what, what's wrong with them? Why can't they just say no? We have to understand that the moment we're born, we're born into the context of a cosmic conflict in this world. That Satan and God are fighting on the battlefield of this world and the trophy is human souls. Every single one of us is engaged in a spiritual battle. And our enemy is wanting to sift us so that we be separated from our faith, so that we be separated from Jesus. Who do you know? who's going through this kind of a sifting. How does this change the way that we see them? See, here's what Piper says. Until we see that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. See, a lot of times we think, wow, they're struggling. They're going through hard times. I'm going to try and counsel them through it. If the battle that we're fighting is spiritual, then the weapons that we need to fight with are not carnal, but are spiritual. When we see people struggling in this way, when they're being stolen, killed, destroyed, then our our gut knee-jerk reaction needs to be that this is a spiritual battle going on. It's not enough to just recognize, oh, it's a spiritual battle. A lot of us, anyone can do that. But what do we do in the midst of that battle? Do we say, I'm just going to try and be a little bit more patient with them. I'm going to try and come up with a little bit more persuasive logic here. I'm going to try and do a little bit more of this. Or do we recognize that in a spiritual battle, our weapons need to be spiritual as well? It says, until we see that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. See, the enemy, the first thing he wants to do is to to keep us from becoming Christians, keep us from becoming children of God. But if we are children of God, then this is what he does. He shakes us and he sifts us. And the heaviest artillery in this battle, is reserved for those whom the enemy fears the most. If we're a follower of Christ, his aim is that we become ineffective. And so he does everything that he can to make us ineffective by tempting us with illicit desires, with forbidden fruit, with things that we know are harmful to ourselves. Or he causes us to be ineffective. If the church is ineffective, he causes, maybe get, get, tempts us to, to, to begin to talk badly and, and even tricks us into doing the devil's work by speaking badly about fellow believers. Not only that, but there's a perverse pleasure, isn't there, sometimes in talking about other people? And yet we do the devil's bidding when we engage in this kind of behavior. See, the enemy is sneaky, right? 
masquerading as an angel of light, making things seem a lot more tempting than they are, and that the pleasure of giving into those things maybe lasts for a moment, but the pain and the heartache lasts a whole lot longer. It's what the enemy wants to do. He, he, he fears nothing more than when the saints of God pray. Because it's on in prayer on this battlefield that souls are won for time and eternity. And he does everything that we can, makes us lazy, makes us sleepy, makes us tired, gives us excuses to keep us from going into our prayer closets, from keep us to going in, uh, from, from praying together with other believers. Because he knows that in prayer, this is where the battling happens. And so what do we do when we see our friends who are falling? Do we talk about them? Do we think about what we can do in order to help them? What, what do we do? Because there's a battle being waged for human souls. And it's being waged for your friends who are falling away from the faith. And there's an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And until we see that life is war, we won't know what prayer is for. That's the first thing. The second big picture thing is that temporary failures are neither final nor fatal. Temporary failures are neither final nor fatal. Here's what Jesus says. He says it again. Uh, Satan's asked, sift you, I prayed for you that you may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you deny three times that you know me. A lot of times I think we are in the situation of Jesus. We pray for our friends. And if anyone knows what it's like to pray for their friends and then to see them fall, Jesus understands. Okay, you think you're the only one who prayed for somebody and then they're not coming to, 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 to the Lord as, as soon as we want them to? Uh-uh, Jesus here. I think this is comforting. It gives us precedent. It gives us important things to, to chew on here. Jesus prayed for Peter, and yet moments later, Peter would go and he would fail. Not once, not twice, but three times. Three times Peter would fail in direct opposition, seeming opposition to what Jesus Christ has just prayed. If this is many of us, then again, we would say, you know what, I'm going to give up on Peter. I'm going to give up on God. Why didn't you answer? In your moment, in his moment where he needed to really show up the most, Peter failed. But if there's anything that this passage here teaches us, it's that temporary failures are neither final nor fatal. See, I think here's our challenge and here's the difficulty in our culture is that we're so used to wanting things right away, right when we want it, the way that we want it to happen. Isn't that what our culture tells us? And so Philip Zimbardo, he did this great, a bunch of great uh, studies. He's a psychologist out at Stanford, did this like groundbreaking study about um, prisoners and, and, and cops in a, in a made-up uh, jail cell, uh, made-up prison. But <clears throat> recently he did a study, and he has found, and this is nothing uh, groundbreaking, <clears throat> but he found that there is, um, in our culture today, uh, such an emotional, like we get emotionally and visibly upset waiting for our computers to load, right? We get so mad. We're like, ah, this is like two minutes. Why do I have to wait so long? Right? We've got all this information at our fingertips. We've got everything, that, more information than the world has ever known in the past 2,000 years, and yet we stomp and kick and scream that it takes two minutes for our computer screen to come on. This is the, the culture we live in where everything is faster and faster and faster. I read in the Sentinel yesterday how um, these so-called Lexus lanes on I-4, 
because of I-4 gridlock, they're uh, creating these uh, middle four lanes are, are going to be toll lanes going uh, both east and west, going to be toll lanes. And they say the only people that can afford it are the people who drive the Lexus because they just want to get wherever they need to get faster. When uh, Olivia and I, there's two shows, about three shows that we watch on, try and catch on TV, and we can't watch them on TV, so we watch them on, on Hulu. And I don't know if you guys ever watch Hulu, but it says your, your uh, program will load in 60 seconds. I'm like, man, why is it the 60? Why can't it be the 30-second commercial? And I'm so upset that I have to wait a whole minute. And this is destructive to our prayer lives. Because we don't want to wait for God's answers. He said, God, I prayed a minute. Why didn't I win it? <laughs> right? I prayed, God, for, I prayed for two days, and yet things are not changing. I, in uh, Peter's letters, he says that to God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand. Time is so relative. Uh, I, I read this past week about um, this, this guy who organizes tennis tournaments all around the country, all different ages, and one tournament that he ran was uh, for super seniors, not people who've been in college for eight years, but uh, really, really elderly people. And so one was an over-90s tournament that he ran. And he said in the finals, a 92-year-old and a 94-year-old were playing tennis with each other. Right? You can imagine how slow this game is. But the 92-year-old on this one particular shot hit this, like, blistering forehand cross-court. I said the 92-year-old did, and the 94-year-old couldn't get to it. So he dropped his racket, he stood up straight, and he said, oh, to be 92 again. (laughs) Time is so relative. And if it's that way with humans, how much more with God? See, when we pray to God, one of the things that we see here is that God's not yet is not the same thing as God's no. If you ask Kenneth, Kenneth Cook, here's how he would say it. He says, a promise delayed is not a promise denied. A prayer delayed is not a prayer denied. And I think if there's, if there's something important that we have to understand, it's in this place. The Bible is constantly telling us that we need to pray and we need to pray and we need to pray and, and to not give up. Luke 18, the persistent widow, the parable of the persistent widow. She didn't just go to the unjust judge one time and say, hey, here's my request. Just let me know. I'll come back. I'll, I'll give you a buzz. Just you know, text me when you're done. She went time and time again and she continued to go and continued to go and continued to go until she received what she got. How long are we supposed to pray? How long do we need to wait? How long were the disciples supposed to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high, until the Holy Spirit came upon them? How long was Moses to stand with his arms lifted at Rephidim in Exodus 17 until the Amalekites were defeated? See, we pray until something happens. Isn't that what we're always taught? But so often we pray until I lose faith. I pray until I get tired. But he says to continue to pray and to continue to pray until you see, until you see. Sometimes God is more interested in the person that we're becoming than in the answer that he's giving to us. He desires to mold us and to shape us into becoming people of character. And a lot of times that goes, takes us through the school of prayer. 
takes us through the school of patient affliction and waiting and seeking. When it seems like my prayers are in a prayers in a desert and it seems like there's nothing going on and no response from God. He says, will you continue to say that I am good enough for you? Will you continue to say that you don't want you don't need the blessing of God? First and foremost, you need me. And if you get me, then you'll have the blessing. See, our temporary failures of our friends are neither final nor fatal. And we cannot give up just because we see them falling away. Because God's answers to our, t- to our prayers sometimes come in a lot different timetable than, than we think. There are things that I've been praying for for many, many years for my family. And just now beginning to see. Just now beginning to see. And I don't know. I, I, I need to continue to pray. But just now beginning to see answers. And I don't want to be specific because one of the people I'm praying for listens to my sermons. But that's sometimes how it is. We continue to pray even at great length until we begin to see answers to prayer. This is what George Mueller, if anyone wants to read a great autobiography, a great biography of faith and answers to prayer, read the, autobi- the biography of, of George Mueller. He was a, a praying man and he had five friends, five unsafe friends that he would constantly pray for. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And he said, after five years, one came to saving faith in Christ. He continued to pray. And after 10 more years, two more came to faith. 35 years later, 35 years of praying. Some of us don't pray 35 minutes of combined prayer for anything, but 35 years of praying. And a fourth one came to faith in Christ. The last one, 52 years later, he would not live to see it. But soon after his funeral, his fifth friend came to faith in Christ. Willing to pray until some, and along the way, how many temporary failures did he see that would have derailed the faith of a common person? But he said, God's delays do not mean God's denials. His not yet does not mean no. And I'm going to pray until something happens. That's the second thing that we see. And then the last thing that we see that God knows we fail and he uses us still. Verse 31, he says, verse 32, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Right? God knew that Peter was going to fall. He knew that he was going to mess up. But he knew that that failure was neither fatal nor final. And he said, I'm still going to use you. In fact, God's redemption story is so much bigger than the story of our failures. It's not just all you blew it. Now God's going to take you and he's going to do something with you. And, 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 and just in spite of your failures, he's going to, he's going to use you. It's like we fail, we fall, we mess up, but God's redemption is so much bigger that he takes our brokenness. He takes our failures and he lifts that up. And he says through this, because you failed, I'm going to use you in a way far greater than had you not failed. Again, this doesn't mean that we ought to fail so that we could be used greater. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that God uses people. He uses people as they come. But our failures do not disqualify us from service in God's kingdom. See, Peter, he failed here. And actually, six times he failed. He fell asleep three times. And then he denied Jesus three times. He failed many, many times. And yet Jesus says, look, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He's like, you know what? There are 11 disciples who are going to fall away. 
Peter, I'm, I'm praying for you that you would not fall. But when you do, when you come, when you've turned back, go and, and strengthen the rest of the brothers because I've given you a mission. See, Peter, Peter knew that God was going to use him, that he was going to be the rock upon which the church was going to be built. And Peter knew it. He was, a bad, he was a bad man. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death because you said you're going to build your church upon me. And God says, you know, Peter, you have to go through a process in order for me to use you. And so in the midst of his failures, God just changed him and, and humbled him and, and broke him so that he could get to this place. But I am so glad that Jesus did not stop praying for Peter. Because there are people in our lives also who have fallen, who are failing temporarily, and it looks like they're never going to come back. It looks like they've blown it big time. But maybe through your prayers, when they turn back, they're going to strengthen many other people. Now, you think about these people in your life who have fallen, who are temporarily failing. Think about people like this. Could it be that the reason they're going through such attack is because there is a plan that God has for them that is far greater, far bigger, and the enemy wants to destroy that and to thwart that? And who are these people in your life that you think about? Elizabeth Newton was one lady. She lived way back when in England. She uh, had a son that she prayed for from before he was born until the time that she died. She had tuberculosis, so she knew uh, that her life was short. She was extremely sick, but every day of her life, she would pray for her son, little boy John, and she would pray for him and pray for him and just pour into him, store prayer into his life and, and, and pour and pour and pour prayer into him that he would come to know you, Jesus, and she would read him the Bible and she would teach him the scriptures. And at the age of seven, she died. Never seeing with her eyes the answer to her fervent prayers. As John grew up then with his dad and his stepmother, both of them who were heathens, carnal, had no spiritual inclination in them. They taught him all kinds of awful things, abused him. And at the age of 11, he went out to sea to work on his dad's sailing ship. And you know what they say when someone has a potty mouth? They say he curses like a sailor. So John Newton lived the sailor lifestyle, just completely living in drunkenness and debauchery, living in shameful behavior, living in, in taking advantage of people. Eventually, he too was treated like a slave, into such a deep place of depression, uh, was treated like a common slave. And once his mind, he, he got his mind back together, uh, he was sold from ship to ship. And eventually, he became one of the leaders of a, a series of, Ships that traded slaves in West Africa, trading cargo for human beings, trading goods for people, and was involved heavily in this slave trade. In time, in his uh, late 20s, he had this conversion experience, and the uh, first time he heard the gospel, he quit all that, that, that uh, smoking and drinking and stuff like that, but never, he never said his heart was really changed until later on in his life when he first time really began to taste and experience grace. And if mom was looking down from heaven, she probably would have seen so many cases where he would have fallen completely off and, and, and looked like he was hopeless. He became a believer, became fast friends with people like George Whitfield, John Wesley, began preaching the gospel. Six years later, became a preacher after he, he, his conversion experience. He began preaching to, to thousands of people and thousands of people throughout London, England, came to faith in Christ. One of these people was a man named William Wilberforce. 
he uh, shared the gospel with them. Wilberforce became a believer. And their friendship is chronicled in the movie called Amazing Grace. And Newton would later go on to write that song, that hymn, the same name, Amazing Grace. Wilberforce would be the one who, John Newton, who fallen away from the Lord or fallen completely away, when he turned back, would go and strengthen his brothers. Wilberforce would be the one, the catalyst in, in, in just shutting down the slave trade to Africa. It became the catalyst for that movement, the, the greatest abolitionist in Africa. And Newton's life, through the prayers of his mother who never failed, never stopped praying for him, never, never even realizing what her prayers would do, literally, literally changed the continent. When John Newton died, all of London shut down. Stores were closed. Uh, churches shut down. Thousands of people walked uh, Westminster Abbey, walking him, uh, following his casket to his burial place. Because his mother would not Stop praying for him. You know, a lot of times it's like when these failures seem like it's led us to the worst place. Like sometimes we need to get to that place in order for God's great story of redemption to begin to take place. It looked like Newton was down and out when he was on many occasions, when he was strung out, when he was drunk, when he was living in debauchery, when he was treated and, and, and shackled as a slave, when he was trading slaves left and right. It just the inhumanity with which he treated people. And yet when it seemed like it was at its darkest, grace swept in. And on that dark night, when it seemed like Peter had hit rock bottom, an act of grace fueled by the prayers of others led his life to be completely transformed. That's often how it is in this spiritual battle, isn't it? When Satan thought he had Peter, he got Judas. Now he's going after Peter. He's shaking him. He's sifting him. He's seeing, is his faith going to fall through? Is he going to be separated from Jesus? In that moment when he thought he had a one and was lifting his head in triumph, all of a sudden up from the grave comes Peter to stand. And then he would go. And then he would be the first disciple at the tomb. He would tell all of his brothers. He would tell all of his disciples. Then he would be the one at, the, at Pentecost. He would preach and thousands of people would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Just when it seemed like the enemy had won and was lifting his hand in triumph at the cross on that dark Friday when enemy thought that he had won. On the third day, Jesus Christ rises from the grave victorious. Not to be held down. So that you and I could be victorious. Why do we say we're not just, I'm not just a conqueror. I'm more than a conqueror. Romans 8 says, through him who loved me and gave himself for me. See, when it seems like Satan has won. When it seems like he's shaken and sifted and separated the people of God from their faith. When the people of God continue to pray and persist in prayer and to expect that God is going to show up. How can we worship a God like the one we sing about and not expect him to show up? How can we pray to a God who's given us these great and precious promises and not persevere in prayer? How can we see these stories of scripture and see that the paradigm of scripture is death to life and not, and not continue praying? For these wayward saints. We take this message to heart. I pray that we would rise up. And that we would expect more from God. As we think about the failing. Falling saints. That we would also rise up and lift our eyes higher. And see that our God is greater. Than our enemy. And that he promises victory to those who believe.
Guys, I hope that I hope that this resonates in your heart. Because if it doesn't, if it doesn't, it doesn't, then I think there's so much at stake here. But if it does, if we do, if we begin to really internalize these things and to apply them into our situations. And we talk about, oh, I want to see this happen in our world. I want to see this happen in our church. But what means are we taking in order to get there? In this spiritual battle, what are the weapons with which we're fighting? And no one goes into hand-to-hand combat with water guns and super soakers, thinking that I'm going to win the war in that way. And we need to enter in to a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons and understand that the battle that we fight is spiritual. The battle for souls is spiritual. It's not merely physical. It's not merely intellectual. It's not merely emotional. But the battle is spiritual, and the weapons with which we fight are spiritual as well. They're not carnal, but they're powerful through God to pull down and to overcome the tactics of the enemy. So as we think about the people in our lives, maybe people in your Sunday school class, maybe people in your cell church, people in your family, people in your wherever they might be, fill in that blank. Let's begin to pray for them, and let's make a commitment right now. Say, God, I'm going to pray until... Something happens. I'm not going to pray till I begin to see the opposite of my prayers. I'm not going to pray until I get tired or until I, my faith gets weak. I'm going to pray until something happens. Maybe for some of us that means praying through the rest of this month. Maybe for others it's saying, I'm going to pray every day at 12 o'clock for the rest of this year. But let's, let's commit to this. Let's commit to taking God at his word and, and, and dreaming bigger dreams so that we might see bigger answers, so that we might offer up greater praises to our God. Let's come to our God and let's pray. Maybe if we need to pray, asking the Lord to forgive us for our prayerlessness or forgive us for the ways in which we have uh, not believed and doubted. Let's also turn our eyes as we scoop up these people and lift them up to the throne of grace. Let's pray for them. God, help them that though they may fail temporarily, help them to know that their failures are not fatal, nor are they final. God, you're wanting to do something in them so that they might be a blessing to others as well. Let's pray together for these people, pray together for ourselves, ask the Lord that he would come and that he would meet us here. Let's pray in faith, pray in belief, lifting our eyes to gaze upon our Lord and God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus, you, Jesus knows what we go through. He knows the pain of seeing friends fall away. He knows the pain of unanswered prayer. And yet he teaches us that we pray through all these things, even when we don't see 
the answers to our prayers in this lifetime, praying and trusting that you are good and that you are God and that you are loving. Father in heaven, would you forgive us by the blood of Christ and wash us for living by sight and not by faith, for leaning on the prayers of other people and expecting them to do it rather than taking it upon ourselves to live out your call to intercede on behalf of those whom you've called us to love and be in relationship with. We pray, Father, that your people here would get it, that we would get it, that I would get it. You would help us to not give up, that you would take the word of God that was spoken today and you would plant it deep in the hearts of your people and it would sink down in the very core of who they are, that wherever they go on their school bus, in their cars, as they drive to work, as they interact with their uh, family members, as they pray together with their, uh, with their children, that they would pray believing in a God who strengthens our faith. Pray that you would help us not only to pray and trust in your power, but to trust in your wisdom by trusting in your timing as well. We thank you that you love us, that you love our falling friends, and that your plan for them is far greater. May our prayers release their potential in the mighty name of Jesus that we begin to see the vision of heaven pulled down to earth through faith in Christ. We thank you, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.